0: Good morning. Try that again. Good morning. morning. I know what it is. You saw this and you thought, this is going to be a long sermon. No. Uh -uh. But it's good to see you this morning. It's a privilege to be able to share with you. I'm Scott Westbrook. I'm the executive pastor here. And what I'd like to do this morning is to pick up where Chris left off last week. If you missed the message, it was one of those very powerful type of messages that uh, spoke to us while we were listening but then continued to speak to us throughout the week. He spoke on forgiveness. And uh, it was a very, very powerful message, very um, convicting. And what I'd like to do is to um, kind of pick up with that because I don't know how it hit you, but last week as we were listening to it, probably God brought to mind uh, some people that you needed to forgive, you needed to release. And so we went through that process, and you think, okay, good, we got it. And then halfway through the week, either somebody ticked you off, pulled out in front of you or did something or either something popped up in your mind like, oh yeah, that person, Mm." I have to forgive them too. And if that happened, I want you to know that's okay. That's called spiritual growth. That is the way the Lord continues to work and to nurture in our lives and continue to mine down deep to bring healing. Uh, It's called spiritual growth and it's a good, good thing. Um, the, The trouble with forgiveness is that we're not alone. Uh, with this struggle. And so I'm really thankful that the Bible is quite honest about it and transparent when it comes to uh, discussing it, and also the disciples. Last week, as Chris was wrapping up, uh, my mind began to wonder just a little bit about some of the conversations that Jesus had with the disciples, and particularly the one that, that Chris was uh, referencing last week, and in thinking about their response. To this is recorded in different gospels. And so I'm going to just pick back up with a passage Matthew 18 verse 21 through 22. And this is the parable that, that, that Jesus is getting ready to tell is in response to a reaction, a question that Peter is asking. It says, "And Peter came to Jesus and he asked, "Lord, just how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me?" Jesus was talking about forgiveness, and so Peter is thinking about this, okay, uh, one time, two times, three times, and so he follows up and he says, Lord, how many times do I have to forgive him? When he sends against me up to seven times, I think he's trying to impress Jesus, like not just once, twice, three times, you know, four times seven times, Jesus? I mean, maybe he picks seven because biblically it's called the perfect number, you know? And so he's thinking, okay, seven times. And Jesus maybe paused, but answered him. And he says, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven, a whole bunch. Now I don't know what, ha- what Peter did at that moment. I don't know if Peter backed up and started pulling his fingers out and trying to count um, you know, think about this a little bit. Or called Matthew over. You know, hey Matthew, come here. Uh, you're good with numbers. I mean, you were a tax collector, right? Uh, help me figure this out. I, Jesus's proposition to him, his presentation was not to get us to do math, to create a chart, and go, okay, seven times. That's uh, you know, and some of you already have the answer. And so we're calculating. Okay, we're down to 450, 460, 489, 490. It's over, man. You know, that's what the Pharisees did. They were good at counting and setting limits. But what Jesus is teaching is Peter, don't try to do the math. It's unlimited as the grace of God. And he's teaching them his heart that when we come to him and we ask him to forgive us, he forgives. His grace continues to flow. And when you go over to the Gospel of Luke, He follows up on this conversation and he he gives a response that one of the disciples said. In Luke 17, 5, it says, and the apostles said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. I mean, this is hard. This is not easy. We can't do this on the faith that we have. We can't do this out of our own strength. We need your help. And so it's an honest, very honest and transparent type of response. This is something like so much in the Christian life that requires growth. And admitting where we are is the first step. You know, I'm not there, Lord, I need you. I need your help. I need your strength. I need your grace. I need you to work inside of my life. And so, Lord, how do I get there? How do I grow spiritually? How do I mature spiritually? How do I see true transformation take place inside of my life? Our mission statements, which we share practically every week, is that we want to be a people who were growing into Christ-likeness. But have you ever stopped and just thought, well, how do I measure that? How do I, how do I determine in my life if I am growing in Christ likeness how do i accomplish it how do i get there and how do i know that i'm on the pathway to that because it's a great sounding slogan but it simply becomes words if we don't begin to ask some hard questions of ourselves and and ask ourselves how do i foster a life that becomes more like jesus or is this just for other people in the book of timothy first timothy Paul is speaking to his young apprentice, Timothy, who's now pastoring a small church. And he gives this instruction. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7 through 8. And he writes to him, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value. But godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. When I read this passage and some of the others that Paul writes, I, I've reached the conclusion that either Paul was a sports fan or the people he was writing to were, and he's relating to them because he uses sports analogies over and over again in his writings. Have you noticed that? He, he uses the phrase running the race. He talks about shadow boxing. He says, don't box like you're just boxing the air. In other words, hit the target. He applies these things to our spiritual life. He talks about finishing, the, 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 going across the finish line. He talks about training like you're going for the prize rather than just practicing. And so here in this passage, he uses another analogy, and it's being in training, train yourself. And this applies, he says, to our spiritual life. It asks a question, what is your plan to become godly? What is the process that you're going to? How do you train to be godly? That's probably not a question we ask ourselves a lot, but that's what Paul is putting before us. That's what God is putting before us here. Is I want to change your life. I want you to become godly. I want you to train to do it. When I think about training, one of uh, one of my favorite movies uh, is Rocky. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I don't know, now he's training Apollo Creed or Apollo Creed's grandson or something. You know, I just, I keep waiting for him to roll Rocky out in a wheelchair, you know, and go up against somebody. It's just like, it's never going to end, is it? It just keeps on going. But my favorite part of the movie is the training montage. You know, first of all, because it's got great music. I mean, you know, come on, Eye of the Tiger, good stuff, you know. And whenever I hear that, it just makes you want to go out and you know, climb a mountain or, or lift weights or chase a chicken or something, you know, just to, to train. It gets you all pumped up. In fact, I coached a football team one time, a high school football team. And in, in spring training, I would just pump Rocky music, you know, at the beginning to get the guys all fired up because it made them want to work out. And the great thing about when you watch those movies is that in the midst of one song, just one song, its all it took. Rocky would go from this doughboy, you know, this depressed doughboy, to being totally ripped fighting machine. In one song, I thought, man, if, we could, if it was that easy, wouldn't that be great? I mean, just five minutes, boom, here I am. But uh, it's not exactly that way. And even today, I, I hear those things, and it kind of fires me up. That's the type of language. That's the type of imagery that Paul is using with Timothy, I want you to enter into a process of training before a very specific purpose to become more like God. And what he says in this passage, he says, don't get sidetracked with things that don't really matter in life. Don't get sidetracked by things that distract you so easily. Don't waste your time on things that don't really matter. Now, I don't even have to apply that to your life because the Holy Spirit applies it to all of our lives. And probably what happens, we hear this, we start thinking, well, you know, there's this. And it's not sin, but I sure do waste a lot of time with it. And so we allow the Holy Spirit to bring those things up to us, to preach to us. And he begins to kind of spearhead or point out some things, you know, like, this is not necessarily wrong, but you sure are spending a lot of time on that, aren't you? And what kind of time or attention are you giving to training for godliness and how would you go about that? So what Paul is doing is he's saying, let's get focused on some things that are going to really last and really matter, not only in eternity, because it's going to make a difference there, but also right now in your present life. So set before yourself, he's saying, a new goal, godliness. Wow. I mean, is that even obtainable? Have you ever thought, yes, my goal is to become godly? Or do we dismiss that and tend to think, well, no, if I were to describe myself, it wouldn't be godly. Maybe it would be loser, you know? Maybe it would be failing. And the fact is, we are all broken. We are sinful. We are damaged. We're weak in ourself by our own strength. Apart from Christ... Apart from the the help and the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, that is our honest, true condition. And we need to acknowledge it. We need to be honest about it. But in admitting that, what God is saying, I want you to look not at the failures, not at the past, but I want you to look at the goal. I want you to look at Jesus, and I want you to know that in your real human life, I want to work in your life in such a way that I change you more into the character of Jesus. Um, I actually do have a C.S. Lewis quote for this morning, and we'll use it right here. C.S. Lewis wrote, our model is the Jesus, not only of Calvary, but of the workshop, the roads, the crowds, the clamorous demands, and surly oppositions, the lack of all peace and privacy, the interruptions in life. Jesus is the divine life operating under human conditions. And he models that before us because he wants to work inside of our own life to change us, to change our character in days that we live in. But the fact is the moment we place our faith in Christ, radical change begins instantaneously but spiritual growth is something that takes time. Maturity is something that takes time, but we have to be intentional about it. I mean, the moment that we placed our faith in Christ, instantly our sins were forgiven. Instantly, we went from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. Instantly, our eternal destiny was changed. And our, literally, our identity was changed because the Bible says now we're born again. We're new creations. The Bible says that all who received him, this is Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, the privilege to be called children of God. So when you get up in the morning and you look at yourself in the mirror, how many times do you think, hey, child of God, hey, person who's been born again, hey, person who's, who God is working in, whose sins have been forgiven, he wants to change our thinking about ourselves because all of those things took place instantaneously when we were placed our faith in Christ. But salvation is just the doorway that we pass through into a lifelong journey of being, becoming more like Jesus of being changed into the likeness of Christ day by day. And what he's lifting up before us is that's the goal. That's what we're doing here. That's what we're practicing and training for here in life is Romans 8 29 says to be conformed into the likeness of his son. 2 Corinthians three eighteen talks about our encounter with Christ in which we are transformed into the same image. And then Paul would write in Colossians 1.28 kind of a purpose statement here for his ministry. He, he uses this word. He goes, Christ is the one that we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. God wants us to grow up. So he uses analogies like trees that are growing up or vines or plants to talk about our life. He wants us to change and to grow. But godliness, what is it? What does it look like? It doesn't mean that we're a god, first of all. It doesn't mean that we're many gods either. God is forever the one and only creator, and we are forever his creation. But the Bible teaches us that we're made in his image, in his likeness. And there's going to be a family resemblance because we are image bearers. He is committed during our life here, this journey of life, he is committed all along this life as, as we are believers to work within us. Paul would pin this in Philippians chapter one. He says, being confident, because I am really confident, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, Jesus, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day that he returns. We are in process and God is committed and he will use everything in our life in that process. He even uses our mistakes and our failures, he redeems them and works in our life to to break things off of our life to let the image of Christ shine through. Um, I, I had a, a friend of mine many years ago talk about a statue and what happens when someone uh, uh, sculptures a statue that began with just a big rock. It's just a big hunk of rock. And what they do, what the artist does, is look at this big hunk of rock. It's all jaggedy and maybe even ugly. And what they see is not just that. They see the image they want to bring out. And then what they begin to do is remove everything that isn't that image. And God does that in our own life. He begins. He will help things surface, like maybe this week, something surfaced in your life. I haven't forgiven this person. God says, that's what I'm wanting to deal with. We want to remove that unforgiveness or that bitterness or that, that struggle from your life by allowing me to enter in and to work that in this passage of 1 uh, Timothy, where Paul's talking to Timothy, if you look at this again, if you'll put it up again, First Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 1, chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, I want you to notice in this verse something important. Twice Paul uses this word, train. Twice he uses the word train yourself to be godly, and then he, he parallels it and compares it about physical training has some value, but it's the same word. There's a similarity here. And the word that he uses in the Greek is gummanazo, which we get gymnasium from. It's where our our language comes with gymnasium. Paul is literally saying, hit the gym. Hit the gym. Now a lot of people hit the gym in January, don't they? But this is like May, so most of those people have already quit, you know, just thrown in the towel. Oftentimes we do the same thing with training for godliness. We start out strong, we get kind of fired up, we get a program or a class, we take some of this stuff, we begin to work some of it in our life, and then we kind of just tire out and give. What he's saying to us is that there is an intentionality of being actively proactive and engaging in With in in spiritual growth with the aim of becoming more like Jesus. Now, it's important to point out that we're not talking about salvation. We're not talking about getting God to love us more. We're not talking about getting God to like us more. There is nothing that you and I can do to get God to love us more. He loves us ultimately. Nothing we can do to get God to like us what he likes us. In fact, he likes hanging out with us. He likes being with us. He likes doing life with us. So we're not trying to earn salvation or make God love us because there's nothing that we can do to make him love us more or less. But what we're talking about is positioning in in a place where we can receive grace and power and the involvement of Christ in our life on a daily basis that will change us. Dallas Willard wrote, grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So there is effort. There is involvement that is required of all of us, but we're not earning salvation. We're not earning God's, uh, you know, uh, desire to be with us. It's already settled completely. He comes alongside us and does for us what we could never do ourselves. So here's, here's the big question. Is developing into godliness ever been on your radar? If it was, is it still there? Is it something that maybe we need to wrestle with and ask? Because I think that because it's brought up in the Scripture, it is a great question for us to wrestle with. It's a great thing to put before us. And if so, what does it take? What does it look like in our life? What does it take for me to develop into godliness? We like to use terms in the church like uh, discipleship, Uh, spiritual growth, spiritual formation, a lot of different things are used to talk about this. And over the years in the history of the church, there have been many exercises that have been used to help us develop into godliness. Uh, Spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, and there's a whole bunch of them, a lot of these different things. Let me just kind of throw this out, and we'll actually just have a little of activity here. What are some of the spiritual disciplines that you can name? Name some spiritual disciplines for me, and it's okay, we can talk here. Bible study, meditation, prayer, prayer outreach. outreach. We're up to four. What is it? Fasting. Fasting. There you go. Our favorite one. You know. Uh, it, solitude, yeah, that, that's it. silence, solitude. Okay. I, just, I came up with about you know, about 9, 10, 11, when I just started naming them. And then I began to look at what some of the other people have written. And uh, like Richard Foster and Dallas Willard have written some stuff. And, and they, they, many of them will group them into different categories, like disciplines of abstinence include like fasting, silence, solitude, being frugal, sacrifice, Disciplines of enrichment are things that we enrich our life with, like reading, studying the word, memorization, uh, prayer, journaling, confession, resting or soaking in God's presence, as one person uh, put it. Disciplines of engagement are worship, corporate worship or individual worship, service to other people, intercession, celebration, submission. Um, And so there's there's quite a few. I was taking a a counseling class recently that was talking about how spiritual disciplines can be used in the counseling process. And I thought I knew a little bit about the the spiritual disciplines. I thought I could name a few of them. But I found out Richard Foster, who's written some great books on it, has about 12. Um, Sayang Tan, who is a pastor and a, a professor at Fuller Seminary, has about 12. Dallas Willard, Many um, of you know Dallas Willard from his numerous quotes from the pulpit here, uh, Has lists about 15. And then another professor, Dr. B.E. Eck, Dr. Eck, I bet students had fun with that, he lists 33. 30, yeah, that's why I brought the book. <laughs> that's why I brought this because if you're sitting here going, 33, are you kidding me? Afterwards, you can come up and you can look and you can see that there are many and some things that we haven't really thought about. And the fact is that there's quite a list and there's probably even more than that. Now my goal in in our remaining time here is not to teach all the spiritual disciplines. That's why I put the book down. Okay, not gonna do that. Because there are some fantastic books. Richard Foster's book on the celebration of discipline. Dallas Willard on the spirit of the disciplines. Those are excellent. I think some of our small groups have, have done this before. And if there's enough interest in the future, we can even do a class or another small group upon that. But rather... What I would like to spend our remaining time focusing on is the key, the key that empowers us to have the ability to consistently engage with any of them, the mindset, the attitude, and the approach. Because sometimes our problem is not knowledge of what to do, it's motivation to do it. And we run out of gas and we wonder, why is this not working for me? And I want to be honest with you. When I see a long list like that, it kind of just tires me out sometimes. So How about you? I mean, I've been to enough conferences and seminars about what the Christian life looks like that at some point you just go, Phew, who can do this? I was at a conference many years ago, a pastor's conference, and they had a great speaker who was talking to us. He was an expert, a pro at pastoring and, and speaking. And he was gonna teach us uh, on this particular session a couple dozen attributes of being a successful pastor. And I thought, this is good, man, I want, I want, I want this. I wanna be a more successful, fruitful pastor. And he started going through these attributes and these characteristics. And me and a whole bunch of other guys were eagerly writing them down. But as you begin to get further down the list, Everybody started slowing down because we're all thinking the same thing. Who can do all this? Who can be all of these things? I remember one of the attributes was being presidential. And I said, is that in the Bible? You know, I mean, sure, that would be cool. But, I mean, was Jesus presidential? And I began to realize, Jesus can't even do all of these things. And it, it, rather than motivating, it demotivated Sometimes we approach spiritual growth and discipline in such an academic, hard, duty-bound, Pharisaical, legalistic way that it demotivates us rather than gives us energy and desire to come into engagement. When I was a child, uh, I I went to a very, I guess, pretty standard church uh, back in the day. And we had an interesting approach to spiritual growth. Every week when we came in, everybody was given an offering envelope. And you would write your name and the amount of your offering on that envelope. And then at the bottom, there were all these little boxes that you would check. Anybody else been there? And they were daily Bible reading. And so you're either check it or not check it. Daily prayer, you either check it or not check it. Sunday school attendance, well, you know, probably I could check that one. Uh, completed the Sunday school lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, visitation that's on the same night that, uh, no, uh, prayer meeting, um, giving today. Let me see. All right. Now I know that the motivation was to kind of help us have some accountability and encouragement. But as you would sit there, particularly in my little boy mind, uh, I'm sitting there looking at that and I realize I've got to turn this in. And those guys, it's in, in the back, they were called ushers, but they look more like bouncers to my little boy mine. mine. Um, I mean, they could drag you and pull you out of here pretty quick because they were big guys. And I've got to decide, you know, the pastor is going to see this. And he's going to look at this. And what do they do with these things? I mean, I have an imagination. I'm wondering, what do they, do they tally these in the back? Do they have a chart somewhere? Do they go, oh, Scott didn't, uh, Scott not again, again, he didn't. You know, we got to do something with this kid here. And I realized that I wasn't the only one struggling with that. Years later, I thought, what were we really training people to do? Lie <laughs> in church? Because you don't want to admit that you're not doing those things. And so rather than really stimulating us to do it, it kind of just taught us to pose, to be a poser, to look like we were doing it, but not, no, in our heart, that we really weren't doing it. I ran across an article recently uh, about this guy called The Great Imposter. His name was Barry Bremen. And uh, back in 1979, before most of you were born, I know, um, he joined the PGA US Open and almost finished a round before two pros, uh, uh, with two pros before he was ushered out and realized he wasn't even supposed to be there. After that, he put on a Yankees uniform and he shagged flies before the All-Star game. He was arrested during the team photo shoot. (laughs) Posing, I think they made a movie about him. Posing. You know, we do it. We want to look the part, but we know deep down inside, I'm just going through the motions and I'm not having deep, deep character change. I'm jumping through the hoops, saying the right things, but is my life changing? It's enough to drive us to our knees. But you know, I want to tell you that we serve this this wonderful father who is awesome, who draws us to himself, who is delighted when we realize the deficits in our life, who doesn't turn away from us, who doesn't grade us and score us and say, yeah, I know you haven't been reading your Bible. He says, come here, child. I love you. I want you to be with me. He draws us in because he desires to love on us, and he desires to bring about radical change in our life. I mentioned Dallas Willard earlier, and we talk about Dallas a lot, but one thing I didn't realize is that Dallas's wife, Jane, uh, who's still alive, works with the Renovare ministry, was a therapist, a counselor. And right before it, Dallas passed away back in 2013 he and Jane and a bunch of their friends were getting together. They actually had this big meeting and they were wrestling with, why is it when we teach spiritual disciplines that we, people can engage in the same activities and some people experience change and some people don't? And they did the homework. They did the exercises. But some are changed and others, it works sometimes and sometimes it doesn't. And they were really examining that and, 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 and crying out to the Lord, Lord, help us understand. And they realized is they looked at it, and they talked about it, that much of our spiritual growth is on having the right beliefs or doing the right actions, but the inner soul is not changed. The heart is not changed. We realize that we can have the right beliefs, we can have the right facts, we can pass the test and even have a high score, but we're not becoming more like Jesus. And why is that? They realized that much of their approach, and this has been my personal history, much of my approach to discipleship has been what we would call left-brain approach, okay? We talk about the brain being kind of two spheres, right and left, and we're dominant either right or left. The left is the more rational, methodical, analytical, diagnostic side. We really solve a lot of technical problems in that left side. The right side is the more creative, more imaginative, more artistic, more relational, The theory is that people are either left brain or right brain dominant. And we may have tendencies in that way, but the idea is that we're locked into that. And I, I think that there are enough people now who are challenging that saying that's a myth. The fact is God gave you a whole brain, not a half a brain. We're not half brain or half witted Christians. We're a whole brain. And God desires to work in all of our being. We're to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of our being. And if we approach it only analytically, only academically, we miss something that is key to experiencing change in our life. And that key is joy. It is joy. It is delight. God designed us to operate in joy. He He actually established our brain to run on joy like a car runs on fuel. And God desires for us to experience both the relational joy of being loved and learning to love and being able to analyze and wrestle and work through the things that are taking place in our world today and to plan and to strategize. It's both, it's not either or. We are constantly, many times, just staying on that left side. What happens when we walk into a room and the people that are in that room love us, are delighted that we're there, they're happy that we're there, uh, their eyes light up when we come in there, something happens in our soul, something happens in our brain, literally. Our brain lights up. It begins to respond to that because we know that we are accepted, we know that we're loved and it motivates us. The fact is, people change much faster from love than they ever do from a to-do list. People change because of love. People change when they are loved and they know they're loved much faster than they're going to with a, with a big checkbox full of things they're supposed to do. When a person falls in love, change comes much easier, much, much faster. I, uh, for example, I know a young man, I'm not going to mention any names in this story, but some of you will figure this out, who growing up really cared nothing about horses, so much to speak. But then he fell in love with someone who did. Now that same young man, I see him all the time cleaning out horse stalls and a bunch of other things with horses, all for love. All for love because the person that he fell in love with, the person that fell in love with him, that person's eyes light up when he comes into the room and he knows that he is loved and that love has changed him. It motivated him, changed his behavior, changed how he lives his life, how he spends his time, how he spends his money because of love. Love changes us. We serve a God who loves us beyond anything we can ever imagine. Our God delights over us, and he is full of joy over us. I don't know if you ever think, when you think about God, what comes to your mind in power, might, glory, holiness? Those are the things that come to mind. But what about joy? Our God overflows with joy, and he delights over you. When you walk into the room, his face lights up. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. Let me just read a couple of passages in Numbers uh, chapter 6, 24 through 26. We're taught this blessing. God gave us this blessing, and it has become a regular prayer among many, many people. It is a reminder of the feelings of God. It is the reminder of God's desire for you and what he desires to do. So let me read this. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. To bless means to put within us what is not there. Okay, so here again we have Jesus saying he's come to give us life and to give it abundantly. God desires to bless and put within us what is not there to keep us, and watch this, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. God's face is beaming. It is shining like a parent watching their child play. It says that the Lord turns his face toward you, not away from you. And some of you have been taught that he turns his face away. No, he turns his face toward you. Remember when you were growing up, and maybe you would say, or you've seen your children, you know, I remember this so well Daddy, look. Daddy, look. Daddy, look. Mommy, look. Mommy, mommy, look. What is it within the heart of a child that they desire so much? their parents, to look at them with eyes of delight, eyes of approval. And so what he's saying here is the Lord, he turns his face toward you, toward you. He sees you. Maybe no one else does. Maybe you feel invisible in this world. Maybe you're struggling with something today that you feel like you're all alone and there's no one there. That is not true. The Lord sees you. He's watching, he notices, and he delights in you. He's saying, may you feel the joy of God's face shining upon you because he is happy over your very existence, like a parent is with the birth of a child. In Psalm 89, verse 15, it's translated, blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence, Lord. In the Hebrew, This this phrase, in the light of your presence, literally is in the light of your face. Not just your presence, but your face is turned toward me. And this is not an isolated example. You see this over and over again. God's presence is his face being turned toward us in the Bible. In Psalm 1611, it says, in your presence is fullness of joy or abundance of joy comes with your face turned toward us. Psalm 21 speaks of God's blessings for the king, and it says, you make him joyful with gladness in your presence, or you could say, you make him happy with joy with your face. I'm not sure what image comes to your mind when you think about God's face and his expression looking at you, but let me tell you what the truth of the Bible is that it's with joy. And delight, not with disappointment, shaking his head and thinking, will you ever get it? But come to me, my child. I love you and I desire to bring change inside of you. God's face beams when He looks at you. When my kids were little, one of the things that I love to do is go in at night after they had gone to sleep and just watch Him sleep. Watch Him sleep. First of all, it's just so precious, so beautiful. Uh, And I was just so thankful for them, but I was also thankful that they were asleep and still too, you know, and the house was quiet. But you know what I'm talking about, parents? You know, to walk walk into the room and just see them and just, and if you could see your face at that moment, it would reflect the face of God. Joy over your children. One of my favorite verses is Zephaniah 3.17. It says, the Lord your God is say it with me, in your midst, he is here. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. In this verse, when it says, in, in English, we see that it says rejoice over you. In the Hebrew, it means literally that he is spinning with joy or dancing over you. Can you see that? Can you imagine for a moment that your God dances with joy over you? He spins with joy. He says that he sings over us. That is the heart of God. That is why the scriptures say the joy of the Lord is my strength. We gain strength from God's joy. We don't do spiritual disciplines because we want to check a list off or impress anybody. We do spiritual disciplines because the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The purpose of spiritual disciplines and exercises is to connect us with that God of joy, to attach and tether our hearts to him. God has given the spiritual disciplines, Richard Foster wrote, God has given us the spiritual disciplines of, uh, or the disciplines of spiritual life as a means of receiving his grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so he can transform us. They are a means of grace, a means of connection with a God who delights over us, a, del- a God who delights to be with us. Second Peter Chapter one, verse two through four, discusses this a little bit deeper. Listen to it. It says, "May the grace and the peace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, uh, uh, and um, you, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness." through the knowledge of him, and the knowledge he's talking about is not intellectual knowledge, it's relational knowledge. That's what, you know, to know someone relationally and who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature. His desire is that we become like him, share in his character, As I was praying this through the last couple of weeks, thinking about this morning, um, I had a word picture come to my mind, kind of an unfolding word picture, and I realized it's a parable. Basically, Jesus taught with parables. It's a story. And so I would like to kind of wrap up today by just telling you this, this story. So I'm asking you to use your imagination. As I share this, picture it, taste it, smell it, get into the story, imagine what this would be like. There were two men, they were neighbors, who both had vineyards. These vineyards, by the way, just tell you, it represents their lives. But the land of their vineyards was very, very dry, desperately needing water. So these two guys, day after day after day, would toil and dig wells. Sometimes they would dig a well and they would get a little water. Sometimes they would toil and strive and sweat and get absolutely nothing. However, one day, Up in the hill country, not too far away, a spring developed. It ran down through the hills and it produced a beautiful, life-giving river through the middle of both men's land. It was pure, it was clean, it was cool, it was fresh, it was a gift. They had done nothing to earn it, nothing to deserve it. It was just goodness bestowed upon them, a blessing. One man, however, continued to dig wells because that's all that he knew. From time to time, usually on Sunday mornings, he would go down to the river, he would take a bucket, he would dip it in, fill it up, and then lug that bucket back to some area of need, some needy plant on his vineyard, and pour it there. The other man, however, realized, if I could just find a way to connect to the already flowing river, its life will flow throughout my land into the soil and bring life. His effort, his exercise was to connect to the already established flow of water that came through his land to find ways to connect to what was already provided. Which man are we? Which person are we? Spiritual disciplines are designed to allow us to find ways of connection. That's all they are. They're means of connection to the life of God. They're not the goal within themselves They're the means of connecting to God's grace. We're connecting to a God who already loves us, who already delights over us, who desires to spend time with us, who wants to let his face shine down upon us and light up our lives too. So this morning, I'd like us just to stop for a few moments and pray and ask the Holy Spirit to uh, bring application and blessing and power into our life. Um, If you will, just go ahead and bow your head and let's pray for a few moments.